Well, hello, everybody. How's everybody doing? All right, who's ready to dig into God's Word? All right, I love it. I love it. We're looking very much forward to doing that. I'm looking forward to taking you into that. We're obviously ready to go here. I hope you're ready to go also on the Moon Campus and in the classic venue and online that you're ready to dig in also because we got a lot to do. And uh, again, looking forward to this as we get into our uh, sermon series. We've been in for a little while now. It's called Follow. It is a study through the book of Mark. And uh, hopefully we're going to get that up on the TV here as well as uh, we make our way along. But it is good to be together. All right, several years ago, Reeve Lindbergh, the daughter of the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh, was asked to give the annual address at the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum on the anniversary of her father's historic solo flight across the Atlantic. And she was invited to come earlier before the museum opened together with her young son so that they might have the opportunity to, to see the, the plane actually up close and personal, the plane called the Spirit of St. Louis, the one that he piloted from New York to Paris in 1927. And so they showed up ahead of time, and uh, the museum officials put them into this cherry picker and rose them, rose them, or raised them up some 20 feet to where the plane was suspended above the museum floor, and they had the opportunity to be right there with it. In fact, they were so close that they could touch it, and Reeve was just very moved by the experience. In fact, she, she was able to reach out and touch the plane that she'd never touched before, and she put her hand and ran it along the doorknob that she knew her dad would have, would have touched many, many times, of course, and it was a, it was a very moving experience for, for her to be sure as she was there in this unique setting, and uh, she was moved to tears, and she turned over to her, her son, Ben, and she said, Ben, isn't this amazing? And Ben looked back and said, yeah, I've never been in a cherry picker before. <laughs> Well, they were both experiencing the, the exact same thing at the exact same time, but they had very different perspectives about what it was they were seeing and what it was they were experiencing. And you've probably had that circumstance with somebody else. You see the same thing, but you see it differently. And we certainly see that as well as we come to the text that we're going to be looking at together today. And that text is Mark chapter 3. And beginning in verse 7 today, if you haven't already, please go ahead and open up to that passage so that we can take a look at this together. In this passage, there are actually four different groups of people, four different groups of people that we're going to go ahead and take a look at, and they all have a little bit different take on who Jesus is. And so today we're going to dig into that so that we might figure this out. Now, now as you might imagine, they all aren't accurate perspectives on who Jesus is. Some of them are what I think that we'll come to conclude probably weren't completely right, and, and uh, maybe some that were completely right, but we're going to dig into these four different things. And so looking forward to digging into this because our question today is who is the real Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? And that's just what we're going to call this message today is the real 
Jesus. So we're going to get into this, and we see these four different groups of people that we're going to take a look at. And it's important that we would do this because if we don't understand exactly what is going on, then we're going to end up at a place where we don't completely get it, where we can get sort of sidetracked or we can get off the mark of where we ought to be. But if we can get this right, then we're going to understand much about who Jesus is. We're going to perhaps understand better than what we did as we walked in. So we're going to go ahead and get into this. And as we do so, again, there are four different groups of, four different groups of people that we're going to take a look at. And the first of those are those that we might call the fans of Jesus. They're the fans of Jesus. Now, there are a lot, we know a lot about fans, right? There are all kinds of avid fans around us in our world, and that's certainly no exception right here in Steeler country. As you can see, we've got some people who are pretty avid fans around here, but we're not alone. And with the Chiefs just winning the Super Bowl, I read an article about uh, some, uh, one particular Chiefs super fan, and uh, he went to every one of the Chiefs home games and away games this year, but uh, he's kind of an interesting story, and the reason they wrote the article was because he's now been arrested because the way that he went about funding his trips to all of those away cities was while he was on the way, he would stop at towns along the way and rob banks in the town. That's That's what he did. Nobody ever said Chiefs fans were smart, but uh, he was definitely a super fan, to say the least. Now he's been arrested and is awaiting, awaiting trial. Or there was another guy, soccer fans, of course, they're pretty avid, to say the least. There was a guy who actually got banned from his local soccer stadium, but he wasn't going to be deterred from seeing the game, so he rented a crane so that he could be raised high enough so that he could see onto the field. He was definitely an avid fan as well. But my favorite super fan of all is actually this guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I know we're all avid Pathway fans, right? And so this guy's just displaying it maybe more than what what you have, and so maybe you gotta up your game a little bit, all right? Avid fans are something that we know about, and Jesus knows about them too because he had a lot of them himself. And we read about them as our passage gets kicked off here. Mark chapter 3, I hope you're there. And verse 7 is where we're getting started. This is what it says. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's got many, many fans. In fact, commentators suggest that there's probably an excess of 10,000 people that have come from places to see Jesus because they're holding him up because of the things that he has been doing. Now, we are told where they come from, and if you look at the map, you can see some of the different places. Hopefully, you can read some of these town names. You can see Capernaum. That's where Jesus is, kind of right in the middle, but they're coming from all of these other locations, way down at the south, Idumea. That would be about the distance from Morgantown to here, and so that's how far they are going. Remember, they don't have 
cars and, you know, motorcycles they, they can ride, maybe a camel if they're lucky, but uh, they probably walked all of that distance to see Jesus and Jerusalem and Judea and on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the Decapolis area, and up on the northern shores of the Mediterranean Sea with Tyre and even further north to Sidon, maybe as far as Meadville or something along those lines. So all of these people are flocking together to see Jesus. Why? Because they've heard about Jesus. They heard about this, this guy who works all of these miracles, and they would want to come so that they could see this spectacle for themselves because nothing like this ever happens. And so when he shows up, they want to see it. And not only that, no doubt many of them would have been there because they want to be healed themselves. Now the only challenge for Jesus is that the crowds are so great and they're pressing in on him so tightly that there's no way for him to really move around. And so he's already got it arranged that he's going to get on this boat and he's going to push out to sea just a little bit. And just a little bit. Now, it's not, it's not that Jesus doesn't want to be with people. It's not that he's afraid of being close to people. We've already seen a number of times that Jesus is close to people, that he touches them and they touch him. And we know that he even touched the leper so that he was able to heal him. And, and on and on, Jesus is constantly with the people. It's not that he doesn't want to be with them. It's that he wants to be sure that he's able to fulfill the purpose for which he had come. The purpose for which he was, had come isn't just physical healing. He will heal people's bodies so that he can demonstrate that he's able to heal their souls. But he's come with a message. And the message is the ultimate thing that he needs to proclaim. And, and in order to do that, he has to have the freedom to go ahead and not just heal people and not have people crowd in, but to actually preach and teach and, and tell the people about his father and tell the people about his love so that they might be able to come into relationship ultimately with him. Now, among those in the crowd, there would have been at least one who was possessed by these demons we read about. This is not the first time that, that Mark has told us that demons are on the scene. Jesus has already cast out some demons in previous passages we've looked at. And uh, Jesus is coming against the demons. He's coming against Satan. In fact, Jesus' primary adversary while he was here doing his ministry isn't the scribes and the Pharisees, even though he's got several skirmishes that we find him in with them, but they're not his ultimate enemy. His ultimate enemy is Satan. And Jesus came to work against the works of Satan. And that's what we find him doing right here. He's invading his territory and these demons are falling down before Jesus proclaiming, you are the son of God. Now, ironically, these demons know exactly who Jesus is, while all of these super fans of Jesus, they don't. Seems kind of backwards in some ways. But actually, that's part of the reason why Jesus tells the demons not to speak of him, not to say who he is, because he wants the opportunity to communicate to the crowds exactly who he is and what he came to do, and the testimony of demons isn't exactly what he wants. So he tells them to be quiet. Even though their thoughts about him were accurate, he tells them to be quiet. Jesus wants the opportunity to reveal to the people that his mission is a spiritual one and it's focused on drawing people into relationship with God. But most of these fans have come from near and far for one reason, because they want to see Jesus, who they believe is, for your outline there, a miracle worker. That's who they see him to be. That's why they're all flooding around is because they want to see this miracle worker. That's what's on their mind. They understand he has supernatural power, but they don't have the whole picture. 
but I don't really care so much about that. They'll take what they can get as long as what they get is one who works miracles and one who does wonders. And you know, we can be kind of like them because there are times that, that we want to receive certain things and we're happy to set other things aside. I know you all are familiar with uh, the Build-A-Bear workshop, right? They're in malls and different places. And I always thought that this was something for little kids. But it turns out that a large percentage of the people who are actually buying the little bears are for themselves. They're teens and adults. You might have one of those at your house. I don't know. I'm not going to make you show of hands because that's weird. No, I'm not, I, I didn't really mean that. But maybe you have one and, and that's perfectly fine. But what you do, the way that it works, if you don't know, you go in and you select kind of a bear skin as it were and then you have it stuffed. And then there are certain accessories. You can get, maybe you'd add a hat because you'd like that on your bear or maybe a scarf or maybe glasses and you take those things and then you leave the rest. And that's just the way that it is done. And the fact of the matter is that sometimes that's exactly the same way that we approach spiritual things. We go down to build a God. And if we're sick, we want the healing God. And if we're anxious, we want the comforting God. But if what he's looking for from us is like selfless sacrifice, then we just, we leave that one on the shelf. We kind of make God in our image is what we oftentimes do instead of the other way around. But Jesus came for so much more than to just build fans. He came to be much more than just a miracle worker. So that's what these people are coming to him for. And, and we start to see some of what he has really come from as, as Mark introduces us to another group of people. We've seen the fans of Jesus. Second group he introduces us to here are the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus. We find the beginning in verse 13. If you take a look at it, it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. That's a pretty cool nickname. I mean, if you're going to get named for a weather phenomenon, thunder's pretty good. It's better than being, what, the, the son of drizzle or something? That wouldn't be cool at all. Son of thunder. Love that. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Here's the first record that we have of the 12 who Jesus called to be his disciples. You know, Jesus had a lot of disciples. These are a special 12 that he's called. He's set apart. The, he also refers to them here as apostles. What are apostles? Apostles are ones who have been set apart. Ones who have been sent out, that is really what it means. And, and that's who these guys are. In fact, Jesus is going to use them and send them out ultimately. Eventually, Jesus is leaving. Just in a couple years, Jesus is going to be gone. And this is how he's perpetuating his ministry is through these 12. And so he's called them and he's going to train them to prepare them for that time. Now, we've already been introduced to five of those 
disciples or five of those apostles. You can see the list here on the left-hand side. We've already been introduced to Peter and Andrew and James and John. They're all fishermen. They had a lot in common. Then we also saw Levi or Matthew, same guy, come on the scene. He was a tax collector. Remember we talked about that? If you missed any of these messages, you can always go back online and they're all there. You can catch up on something you might have missed. Matthew, we talked about. Tax collector, very, very different from the fishermen. So things are starting to get kind of diverse here. And now we're introduced to the next seven. And this introduces us to ones who are even more different. These are guys from different, had different occupations. They had different backgrounds. These are guys who had different education. They're guys even who come from different political affiliations. You've got Matthew, the tax collector. He was in cahoots and worked for the Romans. And you've also got Simon the Zealot who made his life out to be working against the Romans. And so they're battling with one another, certainly previous to this. I'm not sure how they both felt about Jesus calling them and putting them both in the same room together. But I think Jesus loved it to watch the way that they were going to get along and the way that they would learn to get along. In fact, it seems to me that there's some, there'd be some real benefit for us to spend perhaps more time in rooms with people that we don't always completely agree with. And there's a lot of that going on with these 12 as they would get together because they were very different. Jesus calls his disciples from all different walks of life and there's a vital message actually for us in that because if he had only selected the highly educated to be one of his disciples or one of his apostles, then how included would the one who is non-educated feel? If he had only called the wealthy to be his follower, then how included would the poor person feel? If he only called one political party, how would the other party feel? No, he chooses a wide cross-section of people indicating that really the, the, the key behind being a follower of Jesus doesn't have to do with being the same as everybody else. It doesn't even have so much to do with your background. It has to do with God's call. That's what prepares you. That's what makes you fit for service is simply the fact that God is called. Whatever your background may have been, however bad, however sinful, however long walking away from God, as he calls, you become fit. Verse 13 says that Jesus called to him those he wanted. If you're a believer in Jesus today, or if you become a believer in Jesus today, God has called you and he has endowed you with unusual abilities to be able to serve him fully and completely. I'm absolutely convinced that the thing that keeps most of us away from fully serving out the purposes that God has in store for us, that it's all self-inflicted. Because God's Spirit is present on every believer in the same way, just as it was with the apostles, giving us the ability to serve God fully with our lives. But sometimes we get scared and we shrink back and we don't live out our faith fully, recognizing the fullness of all that we would be capable of doing. Georgine Johnson was a 42-year-old secretary who decided that she wanted to get a bit more fit in her life, and so she took up running, and at one point she decided she was going to enter a 10K. And so the day of the race, she came down to the 
the location where the race was going to be held, and she thought she had lots of time to stretch, but before she was really prepared for it, people were lining up on the start line, and so she went, she went down and got in line as well and got ready to run, and the gun went off, and, and she took off running, and she was doing really well and feeling pretty good. And, and at one point, she started to get a little bit confused, though, because it was a 10K, 6.2 miles, and it was just a turnaround halfway, but she's already at four miles and the turnaround hasn't happened, and she's wondering what in the world's going on, so she asked somebody next to her, what's going on here? And, and they told her, and she figured out the reason that they were on the start line before she thought they would be on the start line is because it was the start line for a different race. And she, instead of getting in the 10K race, found herself in the marathon. <laughs> The further she had run to that point in training was eight miles. And now she's in a race to go 26.2. She wasn't sure what she should do. She said that she saw somebody right in front of her, had a shirt on, said, just do it. And so she did. She ran the whole 26.2 miles, actually finished 83rd in the women's division. Uh, you know, did far better than what she ever would have imagined she could have. That's how it is for us. Oftentimes, there is so much more that we're capable of doing that we simply don't do because we sell ourselves short, because we aren't tapping into the power that ultimately is ours, which is the power of the Spirit alive in us. There were times when the disciples had trouble remembering that themselves, but not when they were being called. To their credit, when Jesus came and said, Peter, follow me, Peter followed all the way on down through all of the disciples. And the reason that they do so is because they recognize, for your outline, that the one that they are following is the master. Is the master. It's not that following was particularly easy for them. That's not why they followed, because they didn't have anything better to do. These were all guys who had other responsibilities. They had family. These are guys who had jobs that they would have to leave. They had wealth that they had to leave behind. They had reputation that they had to leave behind as well in order to follow. But they were willing to do so because they recognized Jesus as Lord of all. Because they recognized Jesus as master. Now, oftentimes, we sort of balk at that, don't we? Because we don't want anybody to be master over us. Are you kidding? We don't want anybody to be Lord over us. And sometimes I understand that because some people have inappropriately exercised the power that they might have had over us. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is the master servant. And the master sacrificer, if you will, on our behalf and following him wholly and completely makes absolute perfect sense. So Mark has shown us, we got the fans of Jesus on the one side. They saw Jesus as being a miracle worker. We have the followers who see Jesus as being master, but he's not done with groups. There's another group, and the third group he introduces us to here are the foes of Jesus. The foes, we find these guys as we go on, beginning in verse 22. It says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. That's Jesus claiming power over Satan, by the way. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever blasphemes they, or, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But he's guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. For your outline, the foes of Jesus see him as a magician. A magician. They said that he has evil powers. They suggest that he's into black magic. They knew that there are only two people who have power over evil spirits. One is God and the other one is Satan. And they're not about to acknowledge Jesus as being God. And so they say that his works are being done through the power of Satan or Beelzebul, it says. Jesus points out the fallacy of the argument, though, when he says, look, a house divided against itself cannot stand. That might be a familiar saying to you. Actually, Abraham Lincoln, in a speech on June 16, 1858, borrowed those same words. Now, he took it to apply to a nation, a nation that was divided over the issue of slavery. And he says, we are not going to be able to stand as a nation if we don't deal with this issue. And he was absolutely right. Well, Jesus uses it here in relationship to the work that he has done because they were claiming that he cast out these demons through the power of Satan. And it's like, well, why? That's just illogical that Satan would work against Satan, essentially. And he says this just doesn't make sense is what he's pointing out for them here. Now, in attributing the work of God to the work or to being the work of Satan, they were actually tripping on a deadly error that prompts Jesus to go ahead and do some teaching in verses 28 to 30. We've already read it here. You might put it in a little bracket or something and call it what it is. Jesus calls it an eternal sin. It's oftentimes referred to, though, as the unpardonable sin. You've probably heard that before. What's the unpardonable sin? Well, we might just call it this, to attribute the authority of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that stands behind the miracles of Jesus to Satan, attributing them to the work of Satan. It's an ongoing, persistent rejection of God. Now, ironically, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of blasphemy when really what's happening here is that the Pharisees are the ones committing blasphemy because they're saying that the power that Jesus is operating by is actually the power of Satan. That's the ultimate blasphemy, and they're the ones who are guilty of it here. And it's not uncommon, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you've thought it, maybe you've felt it, that you've had a fear that perhaps you, you unintentionally committed the unpardonable sin. But here's the thing. Nobody unintentionally commits the unpardonable sin. It is a willful sin. It is something that you intentionally and persistently hold as a point of view. And the reason that it's unpardonable or the reason that nobody turns from the unpardonable sin is because in order to do so, you would have to submit yourself to the power of God's Spirit. 
you would have, have to recognize God's Spirit for what it is. And apart from receiving the Spirit of God and apart from having His influence working in your life, you will never have an interest in forgiveness. You will never have an interest in pursuing the things of God. The Spirit of God is the one who enables us and in, inspires and invigorates us toward that end and enervates us and that which would be inside of us to pursue God. And if we're just simply turning our back completely on the work of the Spirit, then we will never have opportunity to turn from that and experience forgiveness. Jesus' fans see him as the miracle worker. Jesus' followers see him as master. Jesus' foes see him as the magician. Then there's one more group of people and that's the family of Jesus. We actually see the family of Jesus show up a couple of times in this text. The first of those is in verse 20 and 21, and it's here, again for your outline, that we discover that Jesus' family sees him as a maniac. A maniac, that's what they, look at the text, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, we all have family, right? There's probably somebody in your family who you think is out of their mind, right? And if you can't think of who that person is, of course, it must be you. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, that's what Jesus' family thought about him, that he's the maniac, that he's the one who is out of his mind. There were things that he had done. I mean, not only are they receiving this testimony, while they're probably back at their house at, in Nazareth, they'd seen some things themselves. I mean, Jesus up and left the family business. Who does that? He wasn't eating properly. They're concerned about that. He's a preacher. <laughs> a lot of people think they're out of their minds. And also, he's working against the, the religious leaders, and they're like, man, something's whacked out with Jesus. We better go get him. The first occasion happens when they're not actually there beside Jesus. The second occasion happens once they arrive on the scene. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they said to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, on the surface, it sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? A little harsh of Jesus to speak the way that he does about his own family, sort of downgrading them as though they're not really important. But that's, not his, that's really not his point. The fact is that Jesus saw family as being vital. And we see that elsewhere, not the least of which is when Jesus is actually dying on the cross. And he is concerned to speak from the cross words that are going to make sure that his mother is taken care of after his death. Jesus' point wasn't to downgrade his biological family. His point was to upgrade his spiritual family. He had come to call people to walk with God, and he wants to be sure that they understand what is required in order to join the family. Verse 35, 
Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Knowledge isn't the key. Scribes had that. Getting close to Jesus isn't the key. The crowds had that. Following tradition and common practices isn't the key. The the Pharisees and we have that. The key has to do with something else, with submitting ourselves to the will of God through the gospel and following after him and pursuing him and responding to him. That's what it says here. James, one of those brothers of Jesus who would have been there on this occasion that we just read about, James would have been standing there. He would have seen and listened to all that was going on, including what Jesus taught. He would eventually give his heart and put his faith in his brother, in Jesus. He would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He would write the book of the New Testament that bears his name, and in that book, he writes this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's echoing exactly what Jesus just said in verse 35. And once we do that, we come into an intimate relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're not saved into a religion of rules and and ritualistic practices. We're saved into a family. And Jesus wants to be sure that that's clear in everybody's mind. And so the question is, is it clear in yours? We've been talking today about the real Jesus, about discovering who he is. Where are you at with that? Some of us love reading about Jesus primarily because he's a miracle worker. And we love to see the things that he does because they're pretty cool. Some of us come at it, we see him more as a as a magician. There are these things that he does. Nobody else is able to do these things. And we're not completely sure that he's God. And so we're not completely sure where he gets the power to do that or if he even did all of the things that it says. But, but what he does is pretty cool. It's like a magician. You might see him even or wonder whether or not he's actually more of a maniac because you don't see him as fully being God as what the scriptures seem to describe him to be, and if, he's, and if he's not fully God, then the things that he is claiming, he must be a little bit loony because no, no normal person claims those things for himself. And if you don't see him as fully God, there's got to be some element probably where you see him as being a bit of a maniac. Or for you, do you see him as the disciples, as the apostles do, as the master. And if we see him as the master, then that demands something of us. It demands that when Jesus calls, we follow. It's the followers who see him as master. And the degree to which we refuse to follow after what he places on our lives as his call is the degree to which we deny he's master. And in order to have some denial of him being master in our life, one of these other elements has to bubble up. 
has to be a bit of an influence. What's influencing you? I pray that today you're willing to submit fully and completely to be a follower of Jesus, which is what Mark is calling us to in order to follow, to make Jesus master. Would you bow your heads with me? You might be here today and haven't completely come to the place where you're celebrating Jesus as master, as Lord of all. I want to invite you into that right now in this moment. It's easy to kind of float around and, and read about Jesus and, and hear about the things that he does and, and think that those are pretty cool. And we like to, to hear about it and maybe even learn more about it. But there's got to come a point at which it's not just something that we hear, but it's, that it's something that we do. Don't just hear it and, and not act deceiving yourself. It's something that requires a response on our part, a response of making him master, of making him Lord of all, of putting our faith completely in him. We can't straddle the line between miracle worker and master or magician and master. We need to be all in if our life is really going to be given to God and that we have the opportunity to experience the fullness of what he desires for us. And if that's the, the place that you want to go, if that's what you want your experience to be, and you've never had the occasion of putting your faith and trust completely in Jesus, and I want to invite you to do so right now. You can do it by just talking to God. I'm going to pray a prayer that you can use if you choose, but you don't need to. You can use your own words. You can just express your heart to God. That's what gets it done. But you might say words like these, just quietly where you are, dear God. I recognize that I have not made you Lord and master of my life. I've chosen to hold on to that for myself. But today, I want to change that. Today, I want to put my faith and my trust completely in you. I come, I confess my sin, and I'm asking for your forgiveness to pave the way so that I might have ready access into the power of your spirit and the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Today, I put my faith and my trust completely in you. And if that's your prayer today, if that's the desire of your heart, the scriptures say that it's accomplished and we celebrate together with you. We'd love to know about it. If you'd write on that connect card, you're going to turn in in just a minute. Just write on there, I trusted Jesus today. Then we'll know. Or if you're listening online or somewhere else that you would Go on to the site, the website, and right there you can respond and tell us or call us. We would love to have this conversation with you. Or if you're in a place where you're wrestling still with the idea of giving yourself completely over 
to Jesus, to make him master of all. We'd love to have that conversation with you as well. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love for us. We want to walk in the fullness of that as followers of Jesus. We commit ourselves to that end now. In Jesus' name, amen.